Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 13th, 2020. Friday the 13th, but we are not superstitious about numbers. 13 is actually a good number. There were 13 tribes in Israel. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 15 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, and this is titled, The Prayer for Wisdom. Throughout the first eight chapters of the wisdom of Solomon, we have seen several changes of subject. First, Solomon introduced wisdom as the remedy for sin and death. And then he contrasted the attitudes and behavior of the impious, or ungodly men, to the attitudes and behavior of the righteous, while concluding that the righteous man stands as a barrier to the designs of the ungodly, and as a result, the ungodly would persecute and even seek to destroy the righteous. Doing this, we believe that Solomon was also prophesying a portrait of the Messiah. Then he offered reassurance to the righteous, as their fate is in the hand of God, while impious men shall inevitably suffer for their foolishness. So after describing the punishments of everlasting contempt, which await the impious, and contrasting them with the reward of the righteous, Solomon began to present the wisdom which comes from God in a way that it should appeal to men, and especially to kings, as he, was, as he, being a king, was addressing the future kings of Israel. So Solomon set out to describe the wisdom of kings, the origin of wisdom, and the beauty of wisdom, portraying wisdom as a woman whose allures should cause men to pursue her and desire her for themselves. Then finally, in Wisdom chapter 8, describing the rewards of wisdom, Solomon reflects back on his youth to the time when he had first prayed for wisdom, exhorting God for his wisdom. Therefore, as we continue our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon with chapter 9, which begins with a very lengthy prayer, we must note that the author presents the prayer as the very prayer which Solomon had made in his youth, when, upon becoming king of Israel, he had sought wisdom rather than his own worldly magnification. To us, it is not an extraordinary phenomenon that the wisdom of Solomon was indeed considered a part of the Christian scriptures by the earliest Christians. The book is listed in the canon found in the Muratorian Fragment, which dates to about 170 A.D., and we are confident that it certainly does belong in our canon, where we would place it alongside Ecclesiastes. It expresses things that are later revealed in the New Testament scriptures, which are not so obvious in the Old Testament. It also serves to explain statements which are found in the New Testament scriptures that are not direct quotations from the Old Testament in a manner that reveals their continuity with the Old Testament. 
But to us, it is also not extraordinary that Christians of later periods have ultimately rejected the wisdom of Solomon. While its status as canon was often disputed by Roman churchmen, early Roman churchmen, even as early as the late 4th century, the Roman and later Greek Orthodox churches had nevertheless retained the book. That's to their credit. But modern Protestants have relegated it to apocryphal status, if they have not rejected it entirely. However, in any event, even if they retained the book, the wisdom of Solomon was evidently never taught in any of the universal churches. If they had truly learned the wisdom of Solomon, they would not have been universal. This is evident where Solomon, introducing this prayer, which we are about to read, had also explained that there were prerequisites to the acquisition of wisdom from God. While Solomon expressed the understanding that he had no entitlement to wisdom and that he would not attain it if it were not granted to him by God, he nevertheless made the assertions concerning himself that he was good and that he was born into an undefiled body. This is found in verses 19 and 20 of Wisdom chapter 8, which we would translate to read, For I was a child of good natural disposition of spirit, and I obtained good. But moreover, being good, I came into an undefiled body. Solomon made these assertions in a manner that suggests that he was worthy of the wisdom of God by them. If God chose to grant him wisdom because he had these attributes, using such language, he also makes an indirect assertion that he is a specimen of the original creation of God, which God himself had called good. Then, even with that, he admitted that he could not attain wisdom without temperance or self-control which was also a gift from God. Solomon revealed what he means here by an undefiled body in Wisdom chapter 3, where he had explained what it was that is defiled, and he said, But the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations. These ungodly he's speaking of in the context of Wisdom chapter 3 and the surrounding chapters are not people of other races. They are ungodly or impious men of the children of Israel. And the next clause proves that. But the ungodly shall be punished according to their own imaginations, which have neglected the righteous. So they must have at one time been among the number of the righteous before they turned to impiety which have neglected the righteous and forsaken the Lord. So they must have been counted among his people in order to forsake him. The ungodly, which are the impious among the people, neglect the righteous by forsaking them, by turning their backs on their own people as well as their God. This becomes evident where Solomon continued and said, 
For whoso despises wisdom and nurture, he is miserable, and their hope is vain, their labors unfruitful, and their works unprofitable. Their wives are foolish, and their children wicked. Their offspring is cursed. Wherefore, blessed is the barren that is undefiled, which has not known the sinful bed. She shall have fruit in the visitation of souls. Knowing a sinful bed and having children is a description of the act of fornication with women who are foolish, women of other races. The women themselves, personally, are not necessarily fools, but they are foolish choices for a man to take to wife. It is folly to commit fornication, and the children are wicked and cursed because they are bastards. A bastard could never attain the wisdom of God. As Solomon professed at the very end of Wisdom chapter 7, that vice shall not prevail against wisdom. Therefore, only the true-born, only the true-born children of God could ever hope to receive the wisdom of God. Now, we have said that here in Wisdom. Solomon expresses things that are not so obvious in the Old Testament. Here in Wisdom, these admonitions against race mixing are clearly expressed. Once one, once one gives attention to his words. In the law, there are prohibitions against the Israelites mingling with certain people. But because they are not general to all other races, all other races not even being mentioned in Scripture, modern so-called pastors can talk their way around them, ignoring the definition of fornication as it is provided by Scripture, and imagining it to mean anything but race mixing. Yes, prostitution is a form of fornication, and so is sodomy and other formerly illicit sexual activities. Formerly illicit because today it's anything goes. You could do anything today. Nobody's going to stone you for it. But both the apostles Jude and Paul of Tarsus use the word for fornication in a context that only describes race mixing, the pursuit of different flesh. Once that is understood, the reason why Yahshua Christ had warned that he would kill the children of fornicators in Revelation chapter 2 becomes fully evident. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon also warns against such fornication, but in a way which is not as obvious. Here, in order to show that in his book of Proverbs, we see the same instruction which is presented here in Wisdom, we shall present and discuss that chapter of Proverbs. We, we shall present and briefly, I should say, discuss that chapter of Proverbs because we're focusing on this one aspect of the chapter. My son, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, My son, attend to my wisdom and bow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that, lips may keep, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. 
in wisdom, we see the wisdom of a king. But in Proverbs, we see wisdom imparted from a father to a son, in spite of the fact that Solomon's father was a king. Now this, now this is wisdom, where the father continues, and he says in verse 3, For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. If she's too strange, her mouth might look like oil, crude oil. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou cannot know them. Now, this admonition is profound and goes far beyond the mere consequences of sin, as the sin is evidently never forgiven. The non-Adamic races do not have the spirit of Yahweh God, and therefore they have no share in the promises of eternal life which were made to the children of Adam, or especially to the children of Israel. So this woman cannot escape hell, or at least she cannot escape the lake of fire, not by any means. She didn't sin in a manner that would be forgiven. She herself is sin. So for that reason, the lesson becomes a warning and a demand made by the Father. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others and thy years unto the cruel. Lest, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth. That's what happens when you marry a strange woman. You marry an oriental woman or a street shitter or something worse. And her little half-breed kids are going to acquire all of your wealth and all of your goods. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. Everything that you worked up, worked for all your life is going to end up with people of these other races. You're turning your back on your own people. You're forsaking the righteous, as Solomon explained it in Wisdom chapter 3. And thou mourn at the last, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed. In other words, you, after you pass from this world, you will understand your sin and say, how have I hated instruction and my heart despised reproof and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly. This description portrays the same ungodly men who despiseth wisdom and nurture and therefore take foolish wives to themselves and sire wicked bastards in sinful beds, as Solomon had described them in Wisdom chapter 3. Continuing with Proverbs chapter 5, there is a further but encouraging admonition. Drink waters out of thine own cistern, 
and running waters out of thine own well, running waters. It was believed that there was life in running waters, and there wasn't life in still dead water. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. It was customary for families to betroth their daughters to sons chosen from among families of their own tribe when they were young. So the wife of one's youth would be a young woman of one's own kindred. But while having multiple wives is not, is not godly, it was not prohibited. Therefore, a second wife was not necessarily a strange woman. Rather, the Hebrew words for strange in this chapter of Proverbs are zuer, Strong's number 2114, which is someone who is foreign, and Nakri, Strong's number 5237, which is someone who is not generally recognizable, as for one's own cistern, which in this context refers to one's own tribe and kindred. In the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, the word of Yahweh used a similar expression to describe the results of such race mixing. In Jeremiah chapter 2, where we read, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This is not merely referring to some religious transgression. As the word of Yahweh laments further on in the chapter, And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt to drink waters, the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river, more than likely the Euphrates? The children of Israel were drinking waters out of cisterns other than their own, allegorical language which describes their mingling with the people of those other nations. Then a little later, we read in verse 21 of Jeremiah chapter 2, Yahweh lamenting, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. So we see in the references to corrupted seed and a sin which cannot be washed off from one's face that the admonition against race mixing and the punishment which comes as a consequence is quite clear. In Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon continued in that same manner. And he asks, And why wilt thou, or he portrays his father as having asked, and why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of Yahweh, and he ponders all his goings. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. 
He shall die without instruction because he took foolish wives and had bastard children, as we see in Wisdom chapter 3. And in the greatness of his follies, he shall go astray. We saw the same thing in the closing verses of Wisdom chapter 3, where it said, as for the children of adulterers, who are also race mixers in some contexts, they shall not come to their perfection. The seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. For though they live long, yet shall be they be nothing regarded, and their last days shall be without honor. Or if they die quickly, they have no hope, neither comfort in the day of trial. For horrible is the end of the unrighteous generation, or race. So we see that in very different ways, wisdom is certainly teaching the same lessons found in Proverbs. And while the instruction is presented from different perspectives, the wisdom of God is portrayed in a manner that also assures us that God is unfailing, that his wisdom does not waver or change. In the end, the wisdom of God shall indeed prevail. When we left off at the end of chapter 8 of wisdom, the last verse ended mid-sentence. As Solomon described his having prayed for wisdom and was about to begin reciting his prayer, where the medieval scribes who designated the chapter divisions cut the sentence and chapter off with the words, and I said from my whole heart, we can probably credit the 13th century English cleric Stephen Langton, who was once the Archbishop of Canterbury, with the location of the chapter break. So now, as we begin chapter 9, this is the beginning of what Solomon said. However, it is not a short prayer. Rather, it is the substance of the entire balance of the Book of Wisdom, which is the last 11 chapters of the book. Throughout the rest of this book, the prayer continues as Solomon continues to address Yahweh God directly in the second person, speaking to him even when he also frequently mentions him in the third person as a subject of various portions of the discourse within his prayer. Praying in this manner, he both praises God and implores wisdom from him at the same time. Whether we believe that the prayer is the exact one which Solomon had made as a youth is immaterial, since here he uses the occasion to employ this prayer as a means of teaching, and the lesson is the most important aspect. He is still exhorting the future kings of Israel, which he had begun to address in chapter 6 of Wisdom. Here the prayer certainly is represented as what Solomon had prayed. Thus he begins by petitioning Yahweh his God, the opening verse of chapter 9. O God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who hast made all things with thy word. That word is found in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be, and it was. However, there is more to it. 
For us, this verse evokes the words of Polytarsus concerning Yahshua Christ in Colossians chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature or of all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in the earth, invisible and visible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, or the assembly, as it should have been translated, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, firstborn of all creation. What's the first thing Yahweh created? Let there be light in the Genesis account. Of course, the earth had already existed, and, and the spirit of Yahweh traversed the waters. However, the first thing that is mentioned in the Genesis creation as being created by the word of God is let there be light. The book of Genesis, the creation account is not written to be a scientific treatise. It's written to convey lessons to us, explaining to us the aspects of God's creation. The first thing he, his word created was light, and Christ is the light come into the world. That light that he created was not from the sun, moon, or stars, because they weren't created until the fourth day. All of the fools that think that Genesis is a scientific treatise and, and try to imagine in scientific language how these things could be, they've missed all of these other much more important lessons. They've missed them all, especially when it comes to eating and touching and trees and serpents. They've missed them all. Now we shall address another Christian identity heresy once we read verse 2. He had made all things with thy word and ordained man through thy wisdom that he should have dominion over the creatures which thou hast made. The word translated as ordained is from the verb catasquazo, which means to prepare or equip. We would read verse 2. We would translate this verse to read, And with your wisdom you have prepared man, that he may be master of the creatures, having been produced by you. And that's a perfectly literal translation. The Adamic man, which was created in Genesis chapter 1, was given dominion over all of the other creatures which Yahweh had God had made. So we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. 
It goes on to say, so God made man in his image. There are some identity Christians who still cling to the heresies of the sixth and eighth day creation that somehow see the Adam of Genesis chapter 2 as a separate creation from the Adamic man of Genesis chapter 1, who was created to be the pinnacle of the creation of God. So dominion was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and not in Genesis chapter 2, where Solomon himself looks back to chapter 1 here for the origin of his kind. And having called himself good, something which was not said about Adam in Genesis chapter 2, Solomon calling himself good, he certainly descended from the Adam of Genesis chapter 2. So this serves once again to show that there was only one creation of Adam, and it is described in one manner in Genesis chapter 1, and in another manner in Genesis chapter 2. But they must be the same Adam. Solomon, who descended from the Adam in Genesis chapter 2, is relating himself and the creation of man to the Adam in Genesis chapter 1. Solomon wasn't stupid. He was wise beyond all men. And if you think that you're smarter than Solomon, you have a problem. And if you think that you're a Genesis chapter 2 Adam, then you better go find that Genesis chapter 1 Adam, whether he's a nigger, a chink, or what, doesn't matter. You better kiss his ass because God gave him dominion over you. In reality, the Genesis chapter 1 Adam and the Genesis chapter 2 Adam are both the same Adam. And they are all one and the same race, the Adamic race from which the great civilizations of antiquity and the white nations of modern Europe have all descended. Now Solomon speaks further of the commission of Adam, who was to have dominion over all creation and order the world according to, the, according to equity and righteousness and execute judgment with an upright heart. The word for equity is... Hasiotes, which is holiness or piety. It is derived from Hasios, which, according to Liddell and Scott, describes what is sanctioned or allowed by the law of God. The word for heart is suke, which is more literally spirit, although not in the same sense as pneuma. In this case, suke, which often refers to the life, seems to refer to the character of a man. So it's translated as heart in the King James Version. As we shall see later in wisdom, the world of Solomon was only the world of the children of Israel as it was arranged under the laws of Yahweh their God. The world was not the planet and everything in it. And therefore, we often translate the word as society, which also accords with the Greek definition of the word cosmos and which would also be fitting here. Solomon, having become the king of Israel, now prays that he may fulfill Adam's commission. Give me wisdom that sitteth by thy throne, and reject me not from among thy children. 
Notice that Solomon begs for that wisdom which sits by the throne of God and later in the prayer continues to depict wisdom as a woman. So here he is depicting wisdom as a queen. However, the intention is the maintenance of the assertion that the wisdom which he seeks is the wisdom which comes from God. The as a man and his wife are one flesh, Solomon is depicting God and wisdom as being one and the same, inseparable, as a man should be with his wife. The word translated as reject here, and reject me not from among thy children, is apodokimazo, and it more fully describes something that is rejected as being unfit upon its having been scrutinized. Paul used the same word in reference to Esau in Hebrews chapter 12, as he was rejected for the inheritance because he was a profane man and a fornicator, referring to Esau's having race mixed by taking wives of the Canaanites. Strange women. Now Solomon displays humility by noting the frailty of human flesh and also his own ignorance. For I, thy servant, and son of mine handmaid, am a feeble person, or literally a weak man. Not that he was weak among men, but he was, but that all men are weak. And of a short time, and too young for the understanding of judgment and laws. Even if Solomon had written this many years after the fact, here he depicted himself as a young man and as he had first come to be king when he had made this prayer. Continuing, he speaks of the vanity of fleshly human perfection if it lacks the wisdom of God. I'm also going to offer a new translation of this verse. For though a man never be so perfect among the children of men, yet if thy wisdom be not with him, he shall be regarded nothing or he shall be nothing regarded. Here Solomon is not describing himself as being perfect. And while that may not have been the thought of the translators, the translation may be easily misconstrued. Rather, we would translate the verse, and especially the opening clause more literally, to read, for even if anyone could be perfect among the sons of men, the wisdom from you, meaning God, being absent, he shall be accounted for nothing. Once it is translated correctly, the meaning is obvious, that no man can amount to anything without the wisdom of God. Now Solomon explains why he desires such wisdom, because he has been given the responsibility of a king, and also the responsibility of building the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Thou hast chosen me to be a king of thy people and a judge of thy sons and daughters. Solomon was one of the younger sons of David. David had at least six sons before Solomon. We're going to get into this at length. According to custom, it was not likely that Solomon would ever be king. But in spite of the fact that he was born at Bathsheba, the wife which David had procured surreptitiously through his betrayal of Uriah, Solomon was chosen to be king. 
So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12, after David and Bathsheba had lost their first child together on account of their sin, on account of David's sin, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon, and Yahweh loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah, because of Yahweh. The name Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh. That would be an epithet or a title that Nathan affixed to him, not a personal name. His personal name remained Solomon, just like the angel of Yahweh told Mary that thou shalt call his name Jesus or Yahshua. But then a few verses later in Matthew, or maybe this is in Luke, I'm sorry, I don't remember. I believe it's in Luke. No, I'm sorry, it's in Matthew. Yes, it is. Just a few verses later, after he told Mary, thou shalt call his name Yahshua, it says, they, meaning other people, shall call his name Emmanuel. That doesn't mean that his personal name wouldn't be Yahshua. It certainly was Yahshua. But they shall call his name Emmanuel means that people shall look at him and say, God is with us, which relating to Christ, was perfectly true. So here, Nathan the prophet called his name Jedidiah because of Yahweh. The name Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh. Nathan looked on Solomon and pronounced him beloved of Yahweh. And people would understand that Solomon was beloved of God as time moved forward from that time on. Later, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, an elder son of David, Adonijah, Adonijah, it may be pronounced Adonijah, but it's Adonijah, and that means my Lord is Yahweh. Adonijah attempted to succeed him even before he died, and we read, but Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother he called not. Wherefore Nathan spoke unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adoniah, the son of Haggith, does reign? And David our Lord, David was still alive, but he was still king. David our Lord knows it not. Now therefore, come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. Go and get thee in unto King David, and say unto him, did not thou, my lord, O king, swear under thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon, thy son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then does Adonijah reign? Adonijah was the fourth son of David at Hebron. As it is described in these subsequent verses, on account of that, David had Solomon anointed king at that time, evidently so that there would be no struggle for succession when he died. But Adonijah did attempt to take the throne after David died, 
after Solomon had already forgiven him once, and for that Solomon had put him to death, as it is described in 1 Kings chapter 2. From that time, Solomon's rule was apparently unchallenged, although David had several other sons older than him. By the time Solomon first became king, at least three of David's older sons are dead, Amnon, Absalom, and then, at the hands of Solomon, Adoniah. While three others are not mentioned in the Old Testament other than the records of their births, Daniel, Shephatiah, and Ithraim. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2, Daniel is called Kiliab instead. In the genealogy in Chronicles, he's called Daniel. In Samuel, he's called Kiliab. In 1 Kings chapter 2, Adania is recorded as having expressed confidence, and I might have that backwards, I think, thinking about it, but that's okay. In 1 Kings chapter 2, Adania is recorded as having expressed confidence that it was his privilege to be king after David, where he said to Bathsheba, Thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Howbeit the kingdom is turned about, and has become my brother's, for it was his from Yahweh. But another son, that Daniel, or Kiliab, was older, and his death is not recorded, at least in the extant records. So, he must have been out of the way in one way or another for Adoniah to have confidence that the succession was his. But in spite of that profession by Adoniah that Yahweh gave the kingdom to Solomon, Adoniah had tried once more to usurp him and lost his life for it. Later, in Jerusalem, it is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 that David had many other sons born to him after Solomon. One of them, Nathan, a brother of Solomon, a different Nathan than Nathan the prophet, is listed in the genealogies of Christ in Luke chapter 3, verse 31. He was also born to Bathsheba. Now Solomon continues by describing the task which David, his father, had left him upon his becoming king. Thou hast commanded me, and, and literally the Greek text says only, thou hast said to me, to build a temple upon thy holy mount, and an altar in the city wherein thou dwellest, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle, which thou hast prepared from the beginning. Of course, at the time, Jerusalem was esteemed to be the city where God had dwelt. But ultimately, Christ being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Perhaps here, Solomon seems to have been aware that the temple in Jerusalem was a part of the plan of Yahweh for man in that same manner from the beginning. The phrase, a resemblance of the holy tabernacle, would more properly be translated an imitation altar of a holy tabernacle. The word seems to reveal Solomon's knowledge that the altar at the temple in Jerusalem could never remove sin or reconcile man to God by itself. 
but only served as a representation of something greater. The words do not reflect an attitude that would be typical of a Hellenistic Jew, as this book of wisdom is commonly attributed. Of course, we shall continue to contend with such an attribution. I don't believe any Hellenistic Jew, supposedly the author of this work, would consider the altar in Jerusalem to be an imitation as Solomon had built it. It just doesn't seem to be in their character to even understand that. As we see in the gospel, and there are many disputes with Christ, they worship the temple. The temple itself was their God, not the God that dwelt in it. But by saying from the beginning, perhaps Solomon was really only referring to the plan which Yahweh had revealed from the time of the Exodus, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, since the day that I had brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Yahweh said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house under my name, Thou did well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build the house, but thy son that shall come forth out of thy loins, he shall build the house under my name. Those words, when they were spoken, imply that none of the sons of David in Hebron, who were born to him in Hebron, would be king after him since David could not have intended to build the temple in Jerusalem until he took Jerusalem from the Jebusites after those sons were born, 2 Samuel chapters 3 and 5. Of course, Solomon was that son who would come from his loins at some future point. Now he continues by extolling God for the magnificence of his plan. And wisdom was with thee, this is Verse 9, wisdom was with thee, which knows thy works, and was present when thou madest the world, and knew what was acceptable or pleasing in thy sight, and right or upright in thy commandments. So aside from the knowledge of the works of God, Wisdom is the knowledge of what is acceptable to God or what pleases him and the knowledge to make honest interpretations of the commandments of God. Now, once again, Solomon portrays wisdom as a woman. Oh, send her out of thy holy heavens and from the throne of thy glory, that being present she may labor with me that I may know what is pleasing unto thee. And I didn't write it in the notes, but I did read the Greek of this verse, and of every verse we've commented on, I would have translated that, that being present with me, she may labor. It's an insignificant change, but a correction nonetheless. The translation also missed two words which follow the word for glory. So that the clause which follows glory should have been translated, send her that being 
present with me, she may labor. In the Greek text, the request to send wisdom is repeated twice in this verse, using two different Greek verbs. Now, continuing his explanation as to why he needs wisdom, for she knows and understands all things, and she shall lead me soberly in my doings and preserve me in her power. And that word translated as power is doxa, which is literally a notion, opinion, or estimation. And for that reason, may also be translated as credit, honor, or, as it usually is in the King James Version, as glory. The word soberly is from sophron, which is discretion, and has nothing to do with drunkenness, as many abstinent men have nevertheless lacked discretion. It literally means to be of a sound mind. Of course, being drunk, we're not of a sound mind. But as I've implied, many sober men are not of a sound mind. We discussed it at length in Wisdom chapter 8, verse 7, in relation to another related word found there, sophrosune, where it was translated as temperance. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon had professed, And I gave mine heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail has, given, has God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. Here, if he is granted that wisdom, Solomon expresses an expectation. So my works shall be acceptable, and then shall I judge the people righteously and be worthy to sit in my father's seat. We read in the 37th Psalm, a Psalm of David, the mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. He won't trip or slip or fall. Then again, from the 72nd Psalm, which is titled, For Solomon, in both the King James Version and in the Septuagint. So it was written by David for Solomon, as the final verse also reveals that David was the author. We shall read the opening verses. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. The mountain shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish of peace so long as the moon endures. So if a king governs with wisdom, which is by the law of Yahweh his God, the righteous among his people flourish, and they continue to serve and reverence their God. 
Now Solomon continues for the profession which is later found in the prophets and in the epistles of Paul. For what man is he that can know the counsel of God? Or who can think what the will of the Lord is? In the words of Paul of Tarsus, we read in Romans chapter 11, where he was speaking about all Israel being saved, actually. Oh, the death of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The common perception in reference to that passage in Paul is that he is citing Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, where we read, Who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, or being his counselor, has taught him? But there is a statement which is even more similar in meaning to what Paul had written, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 23 in verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of Yahweh, and has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? The meaning of Paul's words in Romans, which I neglected to mention this passage of wisdom in my Romans commentary. I did, I did mention quite a bit of wisdom where it reflects or evokes things which Paul had said, but I didn't mention this passage. Perhaps I should have. Reading my comments on Romans 11:33 and 34, it seems like I rushed through that passage for some reason. I won't do everything as well as I would like to. The meaning of Paul's words in Romans is closer to what is found in Jeremiah than the meaning of the statement in Isaiah. However, it is just as close in meaning to what is found in wisdom here. Men cannot know the counsel of God or what his will is, or at least men cannot know it beforehand. Men can only hope to understand and acknowledge it after the fact. Many things happened in the Old Testament, and the people understood when they happened that that was a punishment or a blessing from God. In this respect, Paul did make a more direct citation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he wrote, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? However, Paul then asserted, But we have the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ is hearing and accepting the gospel and having the scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments is the closest we can come to know the will of God. And according to Paul, Jeremiah and Solomon here in wisdom, no man can claim to know better. Now Solomon makes another reference to the frailty, the human frailty of a man in verse 14. For the thoughts of mortal men are miserable, and our devices or intentions are but uncertain or perhaps unsafe. For the corruptible body presses down the soul or oppresses the soul, and the earthy tabernacle weigheth down the mind that muses upon many things. 
The phrase that muses upon many things is taken from one Greek word, polyphrontis, which means full of thoughts, the earthy tabernacle. Apparently, Solomon is saying that the thoughts of the mind are loftier than the demands of the earthly body. So the body inhibits the mind. It weighs down the mind. The phrase is a parallelism with what had preceded it, that the corruptible body oppresses the soul. And that certainly helps to establish our conclusion as to its meaning. Therefore, Solomon's words here also evoke the words of Paul of Tarsus in his epistle to the Romans. In Romans chapter 7, Paul gave a lengthy dissertation on the corruptive influence of fleshly desires and how those that the difficulty one undergoes to overcome them and how those influences put the earthly body in opposition to the spirit of God in man and the commandments of the law. So, for example, where Solomon said here in verse 15 that the corruptible body oppresses the soul, Paul had written in Romans chapter 7 in verse 14, actually 14 through 16, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For that, for what I would, or for what I desire, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. In other words, when you cave in to those urges to sin, you don't want to do that, but you must consent to the law that it is good. Where Solomon wrote that the earthy tabernacle weighs down a mind full of thoughts, we read in that same dissertation in Romans chapter 7, where Paul said, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bring me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Then, where Solomon had said in verse 14 that the thoughts of mortal men are miserable, he agrees with Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 7, where he had exclaimed, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body, from the body of this death? And of course, only Christ can do that, which is the entire purpose of Christ. So while Paul's explanation of the conflict which exists between the lust of the flesh and the thoughts of the mind, if indeed a man seeks to be righteous in the first place, is much longer than that of Solomon's here. They are both explaining the same phenomenon with very similar terms. While there are other places where I am persuaded that wisdom served as an inspiration for some of the things which Paul had later written in his epistles. This is one of the one of the more significant of them. Another passage in Paul's epistles, which is evoked here in wisdom, 
is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, where speaking of the afflictions of this life, Paul wrote once again in relation to body and spirit. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made in hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, that spirit, which is part of your body, is eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. So, if so, that being clothed, we shall, be, we shall not be found naked, referring to that first sin. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now Solomon continues to lament the frailty of man, and hardly do we guess aright at things that are upon the earth, and with labor do we find the things that are before us. But the things that are in heaven, who has searched out? We have already cited Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, where it asks, who has directed the spirit of Yahweh, or being his counselor, has taught him? But Solomon's words, also his words here, also evoke the verse before that, where we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out, or measured out, heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Speaking in relation to the judgment of God, we should understand why it is important to seek his wisdom and understand his commandments, because that is the only way by which men can please him. We do not know all of his ways, and we cannot find them out, except through his law, his word, and his commandments. The Apostle James referred to the wisdom of the gospel as the wisdom that is from above, and compares it to the folly of fleshly wisdom in chapter 3 of his epistle. Who is a wise man and imbued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. In other words, if you're really wise, you'll obey the law of God. You'll obey the commandments and you will have good conduct. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and align not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. James is basically speaking about the same struggle that Paul had spoken about and that wisdom speaks about, but from another different perspective. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace, that make peace with God. As we have also seen Solomon explain towards the end of Wisdom chapter 6, the wisdom which is from God will have no fellowship with men who have envy. 
Now Solomon repeats again what he said in verse 13, but expands on the possibility if God himself is the source of wisdom, as Solomon is indeed praying for wisdom from God. And thy counsel, who has known, except thou give wisdom and send thy Holy Spirit from above. Once again, Solomon considers wisdom to be nothing but the counsel or will of God. And that is the wisdom he seeks so that he may please God and understand his commandments, as he already explained in verse 9 of this chapter. James referred to the wisdom that is from above and went on to describe the fruits or results of that wisdom in those who have it. These are the same fruits of the Spirit which Paul, of which Paul had also spoken in Galatians chapter 5, once again referring to the struggle Christians also have with fleshly desires, where he said, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, that Spirit that Paul described as being opposed to the flesh in Romans chapter 7, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Earlier in his epistle, in chapter 1, he said, every good gift and every perfect gift, in chapter 1, James said, returning to James, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. In John chapter 1, the apostle attested that Yahshua Christ is the light come into the world, the first thing God created in the Genesis account. Then, in John chapter 3, he recorded the words of John the Baptist in reference to Christ, where he said, in part, He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no man receives his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set to his seal, or has assured, that God is true. My sheep hear my voice. So Paul of Tarsus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, explained that Christ is the wisdom of God, where he wrote, But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord, or in Yahweh. Then where Solomon asked here, And thy counsel, who has known, except thou give wisdom. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, speaking of God in relation to Christ, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Sounds like all the language from this chapter of wisdom. Then a little further on, in the same chapter, that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, the seat of wisdom, according to Solomon, in the heavenly places. So while Solomon prayed for wisdom from heaven, now we see that Christ himself is indeed the embodiment of that wisdom. And the will of God is revealed through him. So Paul exclaimed, as we have already cited, that we have the mind of Christ since we have his word in the gospel. And to that we can understand the word of God in the Old Testament, he being that word made flesh. So if we seek wisdom today, we must begin with the gospel of Christ. Today we could beg for wisdom to come from heaven, for Yahweh God to send his Holy Spirit from above. And I think he would just think that you're an idiot because he's already done that 2,000 years ago. So if you miss that, you're not going to get it. <laughs> not to say that Yahweh cannot inspire us to do better or to have greater understanding. If we don't first seek the gospel of Christ, we're going nowhere. Concluding chapter 9, Solomon begins to refer to the events of the Exodus, which will actually become a significant subject of the balance of this work as it progresses. For so the ways of them which lived on the earth were reformed, and men were taught the things that are pleasing unto thee and were saved through wisdom. That's not very clear, but it's definitely a reference of the events of the Exodus. We'll see that as this unfolds. Here Solomon makes a reference to the giving of the Lord Sinai and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth in the form of the organization of the children of Israel into the kingdom of God. That meaning of the term is found in Isaiah. After all of the wonderful promises made by God concerning the prophesied reconciliation of Israel, where we read in Isaiah chapter 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy, that new heavens and new earth, and evidently new Jerusalem, came into existence as the children of Israel were resettled, reorganized in Europe, and reconciled to God in Christ, whereby they became the nations known collectively as Christendom. With that being said, we see that Solomon did indeed refer to the giving of the law and the organization of Israel into a kingdom as the reforming of them which lived upon the earth, as in relation to those same things he wrote later in Wisdom chapter 19. For the whole creature, or creation, 
in his proper kind, was fashioned again, anew. And actually, it should be anew from above. Serving the peculiar commandments that were given unto them, that they that thy children might be kept without hurt. The law containing what is pleasing to God. Once man received and accepted the law, a reformation of the earth was initiated. Those laws remain the basis for our morality to this very day. And that also proves the truth of God as Solomon expresses it here. But the devil, world Jewry, is looking to eradicate God's law just as well as they sought to eradicate this book of wisdom. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.